1: Welcome to the 275th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest in today's podcast is Michael Chasnoff. Michael is the founder and CEO of TruePoint Wealth Council, an independent fee-only RIA based in Cincinnati, Ohio, that oversees four and a half billion in assets under management for 750 client households. What's unique about Michael, though, is how over a 30-year span, he's grown TruePoint entirely organically through a focus of working with business owners and corporate executives and has scaled his team by creating a distributed ownership structure with a broad equity participation plan. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Michael has structured his firm with specialty teams that provide not only financial planning, but also in-house tax and estate planning advice in order to provide a more one-stop shop experience for his clients. The way the firm has been able to leverage its truly higher-touch service offering into a steady flow of referrals with an average household of $6 of AUM, and how Michael's firm has designed its career tracks with the ultimate goal of offering select team members an opportunity to buy into company equity through the sale of his own founder shares. We also talk about how early in his career, Michael was turned off by the marketing and sales center and financial industry and was inspired to start his own firm that concentrated on offering fee-only financial planning all the way back in the early 1990s. How Michael used a three-tiered approach of writing expert pieces for the media, establishing relationships with centers of influence with the more relationship approach to work together on joint clients, and becoming an active participant in industry organizations to build his own personal brand and reputation. And how Michael has ultimately gotten comfortable with selling down his founder equity shares as the firm has continued to grow. And be certain to listen to the end. Where Michael shares how being told his ideas for starting a fee-only advice firm would never work actually motivated him more to be successful and prove them wrong, how Michael incorporates his values of doing what's right above all in his everyday practices with clients, and why Michael believes that giving back to others to create a better life balance is the key to our own happiness and fulfillment. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Michael Chasnoff. Welcome, Michael Chasnoff, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Hey, Michael. Thanks. It was a great opportunity to be with you today.
1: I, I appreciate you joining us for the podcast and, and an opportunity to talk about what, what happens in scaling up a, a, a really large advisory firm. I, I know you guys have been going for the better part of 30 years now, have have many billion dollars of, of assets under management and serving well over a 1,000 clients. And I just find so many advisory firms these days as as they're growing and and particularly once they once they get in into the billion plus dollar range, there's been an an immense amount of mergers and acquisitions and and sometimes I feel like a viewpoint that the the only way to sustain growth at a certain size is that you just have to start acquiring other advisory firms to to keep the growth momentum. And and just I, I know your your firm is it's largely bucked that trend for for several decades now, and and has continued on in a growth cycle through through the billion dollar mark, and the two billion dollar mark, and the three billion dollar mark, and up. And so I'm 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 just I'm excited to talk about what it's what it's like in in building and scaling an advisory firm that's focused on you know we can just keep growing by serving our clients well and figuring out the markets that we have impact in and and powering along under our own organic growth engine.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to, um, you know, to really get in and talk about how that happened because it is it is unusual to today to be an independent, employee-owned firm that's pretty much the same way that we started 31 years ago if we are today, so we're bigger.
1: So I think to get us started, can you just describe the advisory firm as it exists today? Just paint us a little bit of a picture of TruePoint Wealth Council.
2: Well, we're fee only independent wealth management firm, and what I always tell people that aren't familiar with who we are, I talk about what wealth management is. And some people in the media think uh, you're a wealth manager if you're strictly investing and in managing assets on behalf of a client. But in our view, wealth management is something much you know much broader. It begins with a uh, comprehensive personal financial plan. And then it's complemented with subspecialty categories of um, tax, and estate planning, investment management, risk management. Having all those financial disciplines represented internally in our firm creates a uh, unique wealth management experience for our clients.
1: And so how big is the, the firm overall at this point?
2: I think we're over 75 employees right now. I, mean, I talked to our head of our people, you know, HR department, our people department, and we're always out there in the uh, interviewing and hiring mode. It's, it seems like the pandemic uh, didn't slow us down a bit. We brought on about 13 new individuals during about a 12, 13-month period, wrapping up at the end of last year. So, you know, it's just been incredible to bring on, you know, really interesting, smart individuals to the team. It's definitely um, been a growth phase for us, even though that COVID has slowed down and changed the way we do business otherwise.
1: And so how many how many clients get served across a, a team of 75-plus?
2: We're looking at about 750 families. The families, of course, mean parents and children, sometimes grandparents. And so uh, we have uh, a lot of activity working with the family. And it's one of our our real focuses is multi-generational planning.
1: And then how big is the asset base for the firm overall?
2: Well, on a good day, I'd say it's a little bit over $4.5 billion. We've had some market volatility. I don't know exactly where that stands at the moment, but uh, we're getting close to $5 billion and hope to be there shortly.
1: So if I'm just doing this from like a napkin math perspective, $4.5 billion and and 750 families being served, so that that's like a a $6 million average family being served? Is that a a good reflection of typical clientele? Obviously, you've got a a range around that. I'm sure we have much larger and much smaller, but.
2: That's right. And now we, we have focused on working with higher net worth clients and we've had a $3 million minimum in place for quite a long time, even looking at bumping that up at some point.
1: And then how do fees work for a firm of your your size and structure?
2: Well, we charge eight tenths of one percent for clients at you know essentially three million dollars and up. Uh, we have a break point at five million where it drops to fifty basis points, and the next five million we drop to thirty basis points. We have a minimum fee. So clients that might come to us at three million or below are subject to a twenty-four thousand dollar annual. Minimum. There are times where we take on clients below that three million, and as long as they are willing to pay, you know, that minimum fee, you know, we're happy to service them. And many times it makes sense for them because of their wealth accumulation opportunities to get started with us before they've uh, you know, achieved the higher asset levels.
1: So now, help us understand a little bit more. Just what what does the firm do for a $24,000 minimum fee. Right as, as I'm sure you know like we, we a lot of us talk about doing comprehensive financial planning, we tend to cover all the things in the CFP domain, so taxes and estate and investments and and, and insurance, so all you know the the areas that you've described as well. I'm going to guess there's still ultimately something a little bit different around what your firm is doing for clients with the $24,000 minimum versus the, you know, the (laughs) average advisor who charges one tenth of that for a financial plan. Right. So help us understand a little bit more just what, what the firm does. Like how, how is it different in a way that you're, you're working with significantly more affluent clients, with much higher fees than most other firms.
2: Right. Well, first of all, when we do look at the eight tenths of 1% rate, that is actually lower on a percentage basis than many um, clients are you know are paying. There are many many clients are at brokerage firms and banks paying over 1%, as you know, but they don't have three million dollars or more. Secondly, our client experience is different. And because we have internal capabilities, we we feel like we have the opportunity to, to dig deeper with our clients we go deeper in that wealth management planning experience many times our clients are saying to us you guys know me better than i know myself and, and so that starts off with a you know really deep dive on the discovery side really understanding you know the why that you know our clients you know are um, you know, making the plans that are making documenting their vision and and, and and really essentially work the plan throughout the year. So it's, a, you know, the fact that we have, you know, we have 16 CPAs on our team. There's a CPA that's, you know, that's part of the client team along with an estate planner along with a CFA. There's, you know, essentially the, these team, financial planning teams effectively, Get very deep and personal with our clients, and we take them. You know, we take them through a process of really understanding what their purpose is and and how to get to a more meaningful outcome. So, I, look, I know that there's a lot of great financial planners and advisors across the country uh, providing you know deep uh, client planning experiences, but it's hard to do that as an individual responsible for all of the areas that we we dig into. And so um, having a, a team effect allows us to, like I said, go deeper.
1: So is that all internal staffing? You had mentioned that like, client teams include a CPA and a state planner and a CFA. Is Is that all internal capabilities for you? So you've got CPAs, attorneys on staff in addition to the investment folks?
2: That's right. That's right. So, um, you know, I'm just recently looking at the numbers. We have 31 CFPs, 16 CPAs, 8 CFAs, a couple of attorneys on the team. They're not actually drafting documents, but they're using their legal experience in advising our clients in trust and estate areas. We have um, three CTFAs, uh, which are, you know, of course, more uh, estate and trust Focused uh, advisors as well.
1: So, how does this work from a like a client? I, I guess I'm I'm trying to envision how the client teams work. Is it is it always static groups? Like, there's a a group of four that's a CFP, a CPA, a state planner, and a CFA, and like the four of them have their group of fifty clients or hundred clients or however many it is. Or, or is there more of a rotating thing? Like, you know, thirty one CFPs managing clients, but then the CPAs and the CFAs mix and match amongst them, depending on the clients. Like, how, how does that how does that come together when you're structuring teams and servicing?
2: Exactly, it is more of a dynamic approach. We have talked about the benefit of creating pods. You have a, a you know, static team helping with you know certain advisors and those those clients, but we have found that there's so many advantages to kind of customizing and you know you might say curating the team for that specific client and in our our you know our team members prefer it that way they they enjoy working with different advisors the the specialists they don't want to only work with one financial advisor or wealth advisor they want to work with several different wealth advisors and, and be able to have a v- more variety
1: so how is this actually just structured organizationally then? You have like an an advisory team of 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 CFPs, but then you've got like a, a tax department with the CPAs and a state team with the with the attorneys and and their like internal resources.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So the, the, the essentially we have of those CFPs, there's I'd say there's 16-17 you know, lead wealth advisors they are those lead wealth advisors are the the single point of contact f- for each client coming in to the firm and and then their job is to coordinate with the specialist on our team the investment managers the tax specialist and estate planning and the risk management folks they you know they're going to coordinate and make sure that they're well all prepared in advance of that client meeting. And then when the meeting takes place, you know different folks might uh, all be present or they may be rotating in and out of the meeting when the client is either in the office or uh, we're together on a Zoom call.
1: So 17 wealth advisors in the lead across Seven hundred and fifty clients. So that's like forty to fifty clients managed by any particular lead advisor. Is that's that right? That's the, that's right. Do you think of that as a like a capacity target? Because I know you're you're working with some more affluent clients. They've got some mm-hmm. greater yep. complexity. So I'm going to imagine the hours per client is is yep. is higher. So. Do you guys actually target that kind of capacity? You know, uh, thou shalt have not have more than 50 clients at once. Right,
2: exactly. So that's pretty much the case. Now, certain advisors are dealing with certain clients that represent more complexity and their number of clients might be below that, you know, that average and others may have kind of a less complex group of clients and they might have a few more. But our goal is to have limited number of clients to wealth advisors, clients to you know total employees in the firm. So we want to make sure that the type of client satisfaction that our, our clients are reporting to us is not diminished by our continued growth. So we're continuing adding to the team, making sure that we can you know maintain these deep relationships with our clients.
1: Well, I think it does help to to highlight when you get into just what's what's different about what your firm is doing versus others. Like it's one thing to say we help you with your tax and state planning. It's another to say, and we have like 20 CPAs and attorneys literally on staff sitting in on meetings with with your lead you with our lead advisors. Yeah. A lot yeah. of us talk talk about being higher touch firms, but we don't necessarily get to the point of 44 clients per advisor and just the like the amount of room that leaves you to interact more more proactively with clients. So to me like yeah, that's part that's of what right. what sticks out between sort of we we a lot of us say we do these broad things but then there's literally just what kind of team and staffing ratios do you pil- bring to the table to fulfill that? And that's what charts showing up as differences to clients right For, 44 clients per advisor. I mean I think you said in total 750 families and 75 team members. So on average, there's one one team member every ten clients, yep. and obviously they do a lot of different roles with that. But if you look broadly at, at the industry, you know the the average clients per team member in total is often more like twenty to thirty, not ten. And just that means you literally have more team resources to do more stuff for clients.
2: So, Mike, when I tell prospective clients, yeah, you know, about our firm, they want to know a little bit more about what their client experience is, I even. Share with them the fact that we do a lot of benchmarking and we look at uh, our financial metrics compared to the industry to firms similar to ourselves we think, and we notice that our cost of you know our overhead cost to you know as far as advisors and staff is higher than many of our peers and and so i yeah you know, I relate that and say, look that's like that's a uh, conscious decision we make. We're willing to accept, you know, potentially a slightly lower profit margin because we want to deliver the type of client experience that leads to client referrals, and um, we we just think that in the end, it's it's the way that we want to do business. So we 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 tell the client, I explain to the client, our experience is different because we're built differently than our peers. And that's okay. You know, there's other firms that are doing a great job, but the way we do business is different in that regard. And, you know, it's it's in our numbers.
1: And I and I guess conversely, there's obviously a little bit of a double edged sword with this. And you know, just if you're if you're going to staff at that level, you you need to have a good value proposition for some fairly affluent folks because the although the the math just won't work right if if the average client or even if the minimum was two thousand dollars instead of twenty four thousand mm-hmm. dollars, yeah, and you have enough clients on board that have to be served, like you you can't do it with that staffing level if the revenue per client isn't high enough to make it work. So I mean, there's there's a synergy of how all of that works together.
2: Exactly. Um, we talk about our ecosystem. It's a, a very, you know, it's a very important one to keep tabs on. Understanding how all of these factors together drive a, you know, successful business. And I've always said this from the very beginning: it all starts with that client experience. If you're not creating a great client experience, you're not going to get paid. You know, what, you know, you're not going to be able to build the business the way you want to build the business. The whole thing looks different. I've always, you know, always looked at, you know, how can we make this experience better? Many times that's meant adding expertise that can, you know, provide a a, a richer, broader experience for the client.
1: So, Talk to us a little bit more about the the clients themselves. Like, just who are you? Who are you serving at the end of the day? I mean, beyond obviously some folks of reasonable affluence, given the yeah, right. the twenty four thousand dollars minimum fee. But is there anything else specific to the the clientele that you serve?
2: We started off with saying, "Hey, we're we're not going to target um, when you break the marketing book and not target market. Uh, we'll just you know when people come in if." They're you know they're referred to us or we we get to know them and yeah you know, they they really are a good fit for our organization would bring them on but over the years I've maybe I've gotten a little smarter we really have some outgoing communications that are geared towards that business owner geared towards families with multi generational kind of planning yeah you know, needs and also. You know, we, we also focus on that corporate executive that has, um, in many, many cases here in Cincinnati, Ohio, that re- that's a PNG executive. And that, that executive has some really complex retirement planning opportunities, you know, with NUA opportunity type planning, stock options, other deferred compensation. So it really utilizes the team and the team's capability really well. We have physicians and others, but you know maybe we do less of those than a traditional planning firm because um, some of their needs might not be as great a fit for the, you might say, the um, firepower that TruePoint brings to the table. So how
1: ultimately does the firm Find these clients, connect with these clients. I mean, are you are you are you marketing? Are you out in the community? Are you doing like niche marketing strategies to PNG? Is, is this all referral based at this point? Because the the firm's you know, existing client base and and years of doing it. So where does all this growth come from?
2: So I'm going to take us back to the beginning, just for to answer this. So this might be a long winded story, but. I started TruePoint in 1990 with a um, part-time University of Cincinnati employee who happened to be pretty good at, you know, uh, Excel or something similar to Excel back in those days. (laughs) So we, you know, we started a little you know financial planning shop, and I recognized three things about myself. One, while I don't shy away from engaging with people. I didn't like many of us don't like making cold calls and um, don't like the idea of being a pushy sales and you know marketing right. type individual. So I decided that I needed to you know, get my name out there in front of the community, and in the three the three things I did to do that was that I I I, I wrote white papers. Based on ideas that that there were a there were a better way to go about doing planning, investing, you know, insurance or whatever from a consumer's perspective. What would be a better way so that you know you're not incurring a lot of the loads and expenses and maybe some of the misinformation that is out there in the industry? That was back in 1990, where you know you know business was so transactional at that time but right, writing white papers
1: you're, you're talking yeah. about Basically, principles like uh, uh, fee only and advisory structures and financial planning structures. Yes. In the yes. 1990s, yeah. when just the yes. industry is absolutely dominated by selling mutual fund A shares.
2: Exactly. Okay. So I, I I got my name out into the financial media. I researched and and you know found you know who who's who were writing the articles. On personal finance for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Money Magazine, Mm. Kiplinger's, you know, even in Cincinnati, our own local newspaper back in those days actually had personal finance columns. So I was a regular, you know, featured resource in our, you know, local uh, newspaper. So that was one thing. I, I also went out and, and identified who the uh, top estate planning and, and accounting tax professionals were, and I wanted to make sure that they understood that there was a, a different way to help and advise their clients, um, that it would not be subject to a, a transactional relationship that I would operate on a fee-only independent basis You know that was um, welcome to some. Some of the other guys, uh, (laughs) their best friends were, uh, you know, insurance professionals and uh, other brokers who referred a lot of business to those guys and they didn't want anything to do with me. The third thing I did was I I got active in the industry, you know, got involved uh, heavily with NAPFA, ended up becoming the chairman of the organization. During the years, and but also I was uh, locally a uh, financial planning, you know, chapter president here in Cincinnati. So I'm just building my credibility and activity level in the city, in the in the industry, so as to have a better crack at being recognized as someone that could help, you know, that my end user, my client, my customer, and then and then ultimately I wanted to make sure that my client experience was one that, you know, they were willing to share that experience with our, others. I, I never asked specifically for referrals, but I always made it very clear to them that the way that, you know, that we're going to grow this business and, and help them further, that client further, you know, help others that they knew that might be in need of services like this. And, and that's how, you know, it's how it's grown and it's continued to pretty much grow that way over the years.
1: So I'm, I'm struck that, you know, what you're describing at the end of the day is, is you know a, a version of sort of expertise marketing, right? Like creating, creating white papers that I'm a, I'm an expert in this area and, and engaging with the media, building with estate planning and, and accounting professionals, which is sort of a, a centers of influence approach and industry volunteerism for, for building credibility, which is, I'm, I'm struck like they're, they're all good things. It's not a like... And I don't mean this in a negative way at all. Like, it's not like a, I found a you know a completely new unheard of marketing strategy that no one's ever seen before and and ran off running with it. Like just demonstrate your expertise, build relationships with people who can work with you and and build your credibility in the industry. And third 30 years of compounding does some amazing <laughs> things with that. Like just I I I don't know. To me to me, there's something really powerful for that. Of I feel like sometimes we try to make marketing. Like more complex advisor marketing, more complex than it needs to be. Of like, where's the super secret thing and the magic formula, as opposed to just you know build your expertise, build relationships with people who appreciate your expertise, and build the credibility of your expertise, and and give it some time to work.
2: Yeah, I I do think that we might overthink it a little bit at times, but I think it's it's like the noodle. If you pull the noodle, you know you can make a nice straight line. I think sometimes in our industry, or in any in any industry where where you have more aggressive sales and marketing strategies, you're you're pushing that noodle, and that little curvy noodle is no longer the trusted solution. And I think what we have always done is operated in a manner that was always in the client's best interest. You know, we were were acting like fiduciaries in 1990 when there just wasn't others operating like that at that time. You know, I do have some great pals here in Cincinnati that were, but, you know, the the gross majority (laughs) of the activity in this city and any town I would have visited is the same. It's like everyone was, yeah. Operating and selling whole life insurance, and you know, front-loaded A shares or B shares, and you know, it was just it was just totally yeah. different. Well, it, than as as today.
1: I mean, it it does strike me that just I don't I don't think it's understood and appreciated sometimes in in the. In the environment today, how just truly unique it was to be offering financial planning and charging advice fees and not implementing products 30 years ago. I, I would almost think of it as that, like, that, that literally was a niche unto itself, being like the only sizable fee only financial planning firm in a you know, in a in a city with a thousand brokers who were selling mutual fund A shares and life insurance into irrevocable life insurance trusts, because that was the other big strategy mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. That you were actually incredibly differentiated in that environment by focusing on financial planning the way that you did.
2: What we did also that continued to make that different. There was people started noticing hey this fee only you know, people are saying fee based approach is kind of sexy let's you know let's start doing that but uh, again what we did over the years was really build out you know, a really deep team it took a lot of investment and commitment to a, you know kind of a long game that would you know really be More valuable over a longer period of time, and I I think the fact that you know we started not just providing tax planning and estate planning, but we were actually filing our clients' tax returns. You know, we were operating in a tax management activity that was totally different, rather than you know kind of coming in in March with all your 1099s and W2s. And having tax preparation made on a kind of reactive basis, we, we took tax planning and tax management to a whole new level within our you know, client experience. And I, I think maybe that decision to engage in the tax work the way that we were doing it resulted in you know, a much more active referral level from the types of people that we were working with, where tax complexity was probably the highest factor on their mind that, yeah, they knew they needed to manage their assets you know, intelligently. They, they might have thought they could get that done a lot of other places, but here at TruePoint, you could have it all done at one place. I I'm, I'm might want to just comment on that this investing intelligently thing because – you know, we're an evidence-based investment management type of firm. And, you know, at the, back in 1990 and even today, active strategies are still very, very popular. And our approach was saying, hey, that's not how we're going to add value. We're not adding value through things that we don't see evidence. So our strategies of using index strategies, you know, diversified portfolios with multiple index or index similar type strategies such as dimensional fund advisors, really gave us another interesting differentiator, I suppose, at that time, not so much as today, but at the time, I think, um, you know, clients were saying, hey, this is, uh, this makes sense. This is working and it's kind of smart from a tax management perspective as well.
1: So I'm I'm struck just relative to the time that you were going to the firm just all these different things that were different of you know the industry is mostly selling active management you're talking about like DFA factors and evidence-based investing. You know the the industry at best is maybe doing some tax planning you've actually brought the tax work and the tax preparation internally the industry was very driven in a broker dealer mutual fund and life and life insurance sales world and you're talking about fee only financial planning so i it, it to me it it, it accentuates just the 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 power of the differentiation particularly in the in the building years as you were getting going that you were really coming to the table with something that more firms do today but almost no one was doing at the time which positioned the firm very uniquely for growth
2: yeah you know what it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time <laughs> kind of think about some of the other things that we started to get involved with over those years as well. I mean, I was looking back 2010, we started our Women's Wealth Council group. And, you know, today, if you're not actively involved advising specifically on, you know, with, with women in mind, you know, you're really behind the curve. And the fact that we've been doing it for over, you know, 12, 13 years now is, um, is you know, gives us a um, kind of another little differentiation point. The fact that we've been engaged pretty deeply into the life planning area, you know, is part of our process, our discovery, the commitment that we made to, to you know, to be focused on, you know, th- you know our client's. Purpose um, it has been it been a, you know an important decision, which I think has also led us to some additional growth. And then um, there's a couple other things we could get into, but one thing I'm particularly proud of is that back in 2007, I started a, you know a succession plan, and um, you know I'm fully engaged with uh, TruePoint today. I have sold. My founder shares down to about 30% of the total, to about 25 senior members of our firm. So we have decided many years ago that in order to you know, retain and attract great people in our into our firm and keep them, we were going to need to compensate them with an opportunity more than just a paycheck. And I think, I think that's made a big difference, you know, to the success of our firm.
1: So share with us more about that. Just like, how did that, like, how did that play out? How did you start introducing shares? Like, who who gets access? How do you, like, <laughs> right. how do the, how's the purchase? Like, do they, are they granted? Are they purchased? So uh, talk to us more, but just how does, how does equity participation work for, for the team at TruePoint?
2: Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little bit of a longer story. But before starting TruePoint, before starting my business in 1990, I, I had a brief period of time where I worked for an, an insurance agency. You know, th- <laughs> this insurance agency was a typical organization, you know, marketing and promotion and incentives. And there was an opportunity to actually buy into that company. Yes, they liked me enough to offer me an opportunity to buy into this black box. You know, it just wasn't very attractive to me. You know, if I go back, some of the reasons why I became a fee-only advisor was knowing that I didn't like the experience working in a transaction-based marketing organization. I didn't like the... Uh, Kind of the stress of Monday morning, um, you know, sales meetings, and I didn't, you know, particularly like the um, the fact that you know that you know that you know there's basically no transparency into the financial model that ran that organization. So when I built you know my firm today called True Point Wealth Council, it was named Advanced Capital Strategies back in the 1990s and. We rebranded, I think, in two thousand and one, but we decided back in nineteen ninety that things had to be different the way that we you know run a business, and yeah, it's all got to start with respecting anyone that you know comes in the door to work with me. It comes with full transparency about how we go about running the business, and so having you know really well thought out career paths for everybody understanding the uh, essentially the milestones that you need to to achieve in order to move from analyst to advisor to you know senior advisor we had a process and I, I'm I'm saying this, this is an important part of having a an equity participation plan is that you have to have the kind of structure and transparency in a, in a business model that lends itself to having the trust and the kind of the leap of faith that you need to, in order to, you know, want to buy into a business. Now, you know, we we go through a process where we get independent third party valuation for our business we price that you know those shares at a discount from full value because you know every individual coming in to becoming a shareholder is a, a minority investor and they are you know they're buying into an asset that's less liquid and so forth and there's a lot of different factors that affect pricing but we created something that you know that pays a, um, a Distribution—it's easy to calculate, you know, based upon our um, growth rate and um, profitability, and and all, you know, and, and the the way that we share our financials throughout the year. So that's important because um, I didn't want to buy into a stock equity plan that I couldn't understand or. or can like crunch the numbers and, and see what what's going on. So, so yes, we have set standards, and if you are if you once you have essentially uh, ascended to a senior management position within our firm, you are now eligible, and then your name is cons- you know your, your senior managers are considered first you know for the opportunity, and my company president and I used to be the only two people that would determine if employee A or employee B received the opportunity based upon a number of different, you know, factors. But today, because we have 25 shareholders, we actually do a process where the other shareholders evaluate our different senior managers. We we go through a, a kind of rank ordering process to see, who is ready for that opportunity that, you know, that it's extended to them. While we say to everybody, look, owning stock in TruePoint might not be, may not be what you, you know, what's important to you. And, And we recognize that. And we don't want you to feel obligated to buy into this company. We've not had one member that we've offered that to, that didn't want to buy their allocation that they were offered. We have been, you might say, oversubscribed every year. Essentially, I've had you know tough situation because it's expensive for, from my perspective as a founder. Every time I sell my stock, it's a it's a I'm basically giving up. Ownership of a higher earning asset, in my opinion, maybe with some lower risk factors, and exchanging that for after tax proceeds that go into a portfolio that's not nearly as um, maybe uh, attractive for in, in many.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, right. Just you're you're selling a high appreciation private business to buy the S and P five hundred and curse <laughs> valuation, right? I mean, that's yes, that's what it comes yeah. down to as a founder, yeah.
2: Yes, man. I will tell you, I've had a lot of conversations with my peers in the industry, others outside the industry, about this process, and I think what we've created through this, you know, equity equity participation plan is we, we have twenty five plus people operating like business owners, and they may only own one or 2% of the company. And, you know, you would think that they were the founder of the company and they operate like founders. They, 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 they give such great effort, you know, toward their clients, uh, to their teammates. Uh, I, I think, you know, it's hard to quantify, but I don't think we could have been as successful if I had just paid them more and kept 100% of my stock all this time. I probably would have lost many of them because they would be wanting equity opportunities and elsewhere. So, I'm I'm pretty sure, pretty confident that this has been the right thing to do. I've, you know, I've, you know, I'm enjoying a, you know, a a, a good outcome you know, based upon you know this plan. But um, but you know, th- there's trade-offs.
1: So this process, you, you've got career tracks for the firm. At some point, someone moves up to the senior management level position in the career tracks. When they do, they at least become eligible for equity. Then the other senior manager, the other shareholders do a process to decide whether this is someone they want to offer an equity opportunity to. So it sounds like it's it's not automatic that you get a chance to to buy in because you hit senior management. You get a chance to be. Evaluated by your peers,
2: that's for right the, for the and, for the opportunity. So, and, you know, you, you, if you can imagine all the attributes that are important to become a senior manager, you know, this is like a, a really good employee, right? He's he or she is, you know, you know, competent, of course. I mean that's the. You know the you know the bottom minimum, but besides being competent, there's their skill set around you know working with their clients, the, you know their kind of relationship skills, their ability to you know engage with others on the team, and you know, their ability to engage into the community all these you know all these different attributes make a well-rounded you know you might say rock star employee now is eligible to become a shareholder and now they have to they have to actually do things now they're in this kind of super group they have you know to be offered they they have to even stand out even further they really represent you know some of the top, new talent within our you know younger talent within our firm so that's how that's how that process works
1: do you worry like i'm, I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this i'm just i'm i'm envisioning either someone being super nervous about being you know evaluated by their peers they're sort of a like survivor am i going to get voted off the island kind of thing vibe <laughs> going or not maybe that's just me projecting but they, that that feels like some in, intense scrutiny I guess I'm just wondering overall, like, how does the selection process work? I mean, just do all 25 other people have to approve? Is this like a unanimous voting thing? Is it a ranking? Like, we're just only going to take three every year, so we pick the top three, and and you're kind of in competition with the other people who hit senior manager. Yeah. Is it something else? Like, just what's what's the actual selection criteria yeah. or mechanism that? that the existing shareholders use to evaluate whether this new senior manager should have the opportunity to buy in.
2: There is actually a metric, you know, with all the you know different factors that I think that most people would you know would derive as being appropriate. But then you know it, it is rank order. So and if you're in the you know top third of that that group you're gonna be in. If you're you know you know below that top third it's basically we communicate back to them. Say, look, this this is how you know this is how you ranked, and these are the factors that you know that in this ranking system that suggests that you need to spend more time and effort, and you know conveying you know more than what you are in this this area. So it's tough, but no, it's not like Survivor because I hate that show. They the best. <laughs> Uh, the strongest are kicked off. In our case, the best and the strongest are, you know, are promoted into and, to, and you know, have the opportunity to grow.
1: So, so does this re up for me annually? Like, if I if I made senior manager and and I don't make the top third, so I don't get the offer this year, do I still have the opportunity of like? Okay, well I'm gonna step up and next year I'm gonna make it like a few people will be off the list because they, they got it this yeah. year. A few new people will come onto the list because more people are getting right. promoted. But like I'm I'm gonna get another crack at this next year and so, absolutely and absolutely so it's an not, annual process.
2: We have a couple super success stories where you know I'm thinking of one guy in particular, he was up for the opportunity to become a shareholder in the firm for like three years in a row. And I thought he was going to feel like, hey, I'm this place isn't for me. It's just too, <laughs> it, 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 it's too tough, you know, whatever. But I sat down with this individual and talked to him about what I thought he needed to do. And I said, you know, it's the opportunities that it's right there in front of you on this. These are the things you have to do to, to make a difference, moving your overall ranking higher. And he took that as an opportunity to grow and he, and he hasn't stopped growing since then. I mean, he's a, He's a great addition, you know, addition to our uh, equity team.
1: So, how when someone gets an opportunity to buy in, how much do they get to buy in? Like, is uh, it a a percentage yeah. or a dollar amount? Like, just how how do you figure out how much equity is on the table for them?
2: It's it's basically the um, we've had several stock splits, and the reason why we split the stock is to get it into a kind of denomination of dollars that kind of is more or less affordable for, you know, most of our teammates. It's affordable in that they will, you know, we have financing available set up with a a local bank that, you know, that, you know, so we got it really streamlined so that, you know, They don't have to, it's not like buying a house with all the disclosures and all the financial, you know, information that's shared, but we have it streamlined. And basically with interest rates, you know, you kind of, you might say in a range between where they were and where they are and where they could go in the next few years, whatever the case is, this loan should be repaid within seven years if they use their distributions the S Corp distributions and they use some of their you know maybe variable compensation that they receive from a team incentive pay, payout they should be able to um, live off their salary use their team bonus and their S Corp distribution to pay down you know the you know the the loan effectively to purchase the shares that has been the case since 2007, you know, interest rates were somewhat higher at times, somewhat lower at times, but uh, it's, it's worked out just fine for everyone so far. And, you know, we always talk about the ecosystem. We think about maintaining a high level of client satisfaction, a high high level of, of uh, employee satisfaction and we also want to maintain a very high level of shareholder satisfaction all three of these groups we actually survey to make sure that you know we are achieving in fact a very high level of satisfaction and but if any one of these categories were to be out of balance our ecosystem would be at risk. And so we were constantly keeping our finger on the pulse, making sure that we're, you know, we're, you know, everyone feels good. Not, you know, again, if one group, the shareholders are disproportionately feeling better than the employees, this isn't going to work. Everyone understands our financials, understands our profit margins, there are some decisions that we make that's deeper in let's say technology or you know, a couple of years ago we were investing in a, a new office i think you came over and visited our new office a, a yes. year ago yeah
1: yeah a few and- years ago pre- <laughs> in the in the distant past of pre covid which seems exactly. so long ago now
2: <laughs> exactly so i mean th- those decisions are, you know they affect your profit margin and and so all these things together you know, you have to be communicated and managed in a way that you know we were collectively doing what you know the team feels is right, shareholders feel is right.
1: So, what led to bank financing? I'm just curious. I mean, you yeah, yeah. could have could have presumably done this with seller financing or other ways. Like, why why bank financing in particular?
2: I could have been the bank personally. I, I mean, in fact effectively I was guaranteeing loans.
1: say, so, yeah, I guess the. The the company was indirectly the bank because the bank said if we're going to underwrite this, we want the company to back the loan
2: exactly. But I'm I'm telling you, I Mike, I know you've talked to a lot of firms that have sold out to private equity, who have you know sold to financial buyers, who sold to others, Mm -hmm. and there's some real strengths to those models. They they. They bring a lot of you know platform opportunities that we at TruePoint wouldn't have to you know be spending money or, or spending time developing ourselves. But at the same time, you know we look at building things that that fit what we do. We like making the choice of you know, you know kind of being independent and operating you know the way that we want to operate. And you know, just having that, you know, complete independent opportunity to do so, and you know, it makes it worthwhile for us to to continue in this way.
1: Are there limits, just in terms of know, like how, how much the bank will even finance in the in the first place? I mean, just like what if someone says, <laughs> like yeah. Michael, I am so psyched about uh, TruePoint. Like, I, I want to buy twenty five percent of the company. Lever me to the hilt. <laughs>
2: Yeah, right. Exactly. Now, you know, that um, oversubscribed every year. I only sell about four to five percent of the company in a given year. We basically make the shares first available to new shareholders and where the new shareholders um, don't fully acquire that four to five percent of uh, shares that are available. Then the existing shareholders have an opportunity to add on to their positions. They right. can. Um, there's a process around how much and who gets the opportunity to buy that from the existing group. Not everybody can afford to do so. They have children going to colleges right. or you know private schools <laughs> or wherever, and then, so their obligations you know kind of limit their ability. But you know we have several members of the uh, shareholder group that would like to buy more stock every year. It's been a great investment for them, you know. Just have had say, no, you know, we can't, you know, do that. We can't. It's not fair to only sell you this year. I, you know, I have to allocate that across others that are interested. So it's just it's kind of a parsing um, process.
1: And then, how does the valuation works work again? I think you said yeah. you get a you get an external valuation.
2: Yeah, we use a external you know, firm. Every couple of years, we'll engage a firm that does those. A you know, couple, couple times, we use you a know, couple of different valuations. Early on, we were, we use uh, FT, and then we used David DeVoe. More recently, the last couple of valuations have been d- done by Dan Sievert's uh, Echelon Partners. Going through that process, I was like, probably, probably was thinking, I know what the number is. Most of my shareholders and you know, senior managers. They they understand the process and know what the numbers are. It's kind of one of those things. So even even though you go through this process, uh, you kind of like it at at the end in that you learn some certain things about your business each time that you might not have fully understood before. And, and so it's been a. Um, it's been a valuable process, and it—I think that it gives a lot of legitimacy to pricing to the you know to the shareholder group.
1: So, why the changes? It just you said, like you you were. FP transitions for a while, and then Devoe and and now Echelon okay. Group. Just what yeah. what leads you to change valuation firms, or I guess how, how do you even think about deciding who's well, who's going to do your valuation? Yeah. Like, whether I mean, there,
2: it really wasn't anything necessarily against FT or David Devoe, but we did see and got to know um, uh, Dan Sievert a little bit. Was really impressed with with him and his organization, but yeah, I th- I felt like. He was working with more firms more similar to ours. Mm. He really understood, you know, our, you know, true wealth management type firms and so forth. So, you know, I'm, look, the other other organizations do a great job. We just became kind of more impressed over time with, with Dan and, and his group and the, and the way that you know, they did it.
1: And so just trying to find firms that have experience valuing others like you that gives you more confidence in yes. their valuation of you. Yes. And and then where do you set the discount? So I know that's yeah. often a topic for debate in the in the in the industry I, and I'm struck at least as you described it, you know some people talk about offering discounts for internal buy-ins because they they helped build the company and were part of creating it. It sounds like you fr- at least you frame it differently. It is Look, you're buying a, a limited percentage of a thing. You don't control it. It's not very liquid. So I, I think of those at least the traditional discount factors of minority control, illiquidity that drives the discount. So is that is that how you frame the discount? And and where do you actually set a discount on this?
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, that that's a it's a area of sensitivity as well. It's probably roughly about a twenty. Twenty five percent discount from from full value, okay. and uh, and you know it could be more and it could be less, and you know like this, Dan Seifert might say you know uh, you know like basically a uh, the industry average or some you know some kind of some kind of metric that he would maybe even recommend might have been a little bit of a deeper discount than what we do. Um, I. Think the way that we run TruePoint is not. <laughs> I'm not a benevolent um, necessarily leader, but I'm not a. Um, I'm, I'm also not a. Um, it is not a uh, dictatorship. We do things together. We make decisions together. Um, I I've, I really have never used the veto power um, or used the power that that I have as the founder and that's spoken in my you know, close corporation agreement that um, governs our um, equity participation plan. People know that I'm going to treat them fairly and I've got a track record, you know, of always doing that. Um, And so, um, for those reasons, and oh, one more important factor, I tell them, I will buy your stock back at the same price I offered it to you at any point in time. So, this is the discount I'm willing to, you know, to offer. If you don't like this for some reason, I'll buy it back from you. So that means I can, it can be a little less of a discount, but at it, it, it 20% they, they basically get a pretty, put yeah.
1: option back to the company. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yes. So uh, <laughs> that was a long answer, but um, I think that uh, that's about right. Now I do know firms that, um, you know, locally here, they're, mm-hmm you know, the, the founders are selling at no discount um, and you're getting a full valuation for, you know, and, and people are buying in on a minority basis. Um, others are um, potentially selling stock at, you know, deeper discounts than, than we are. But um, I think that, again, our ecosystem is working at this level yeah. and uh, I don't want to sell at any, you know, greater discount. Um, and our, you know, our shareholders are happy to pay at the value that, you know, that that we've set.
1: So, so then I'm curious, so I get it from their end, like they're, they're comfortable buying and obviously it's, it's had a good growth journey. So nothing like a lot of shareholders who've had it work out kind of makes other people want to participate as well but i am curious to come back to the the point you'd raised earlier of just like what goes through your head how do you get comfortable with well, not not even just selling a a highly appreciating high dividend private company to you know to reinvest into the s&p 500 with the lower growth rate and the lower and a lower dividend but you're selling the private company at a discount to reinvest mm-hmm. into the S&P 500 yes, exactly. or, or whatever you invest in, just picking mm-hmm. on the S&P today. Uh, like, just how do you process that? How do you get comfortable with that
2: transition? Yeah, it was probably one of the most difficult um, decisions. Um, um, I remember you know, speaking to um, some industry specialists You know, like leaders on, um, and I think I I heard. You always remember the story that um, someone said, basically that that pearl that you find in an oyster, it was created with a a ton of friction from the ocean. Effectively, if you want to, if you want to realize the the pearl in, in your business. This is kind of the necessary friction that you know must take place, and so it's a little corny story, but I felt the friction of not wanting to sell. I might be more willing to sell more at a higher level, at a higher price. I was willing to sell a you know you know a lower percentage of the total at a slightly lower price in order to you know to you know to enjoy the trade off of what we could build together. And I think these are the, you know, the fact that in my personality, my willingness to delegate responsibilities, my willingness to hire smarter people than, than myself and surround myself with smarter people and listen to their perspective and act on insights that they had. The same thing that if you're going to be a successful Owner in this in a business like this, you have to be willing to take you know trade offs that you know that essentially you know really probably benefit you more so in the end, and you know so uh, it but again, it's a giant leap of faith and I think it's working. You know, most people around me would say, "Hey, look, you know you're you're enjoying a you know the the benefit of diversifying your wealth." And you've um, created something that is could be very sustainable for a long period of time going forward.
1: so what surprised you the most on this journey of building your advisory firm
2: you know originally I you know I was from Texas I grew up in um, in, in Austin Texas got started working uh, in um, the trust investment division of a large bank. I moved to Chicago to trade. Options on the Chicago Board of Options Exchange. Before I moved to Cincinnati to get started with investment management, you know, for an insurance agency. When you meet people in Cincinnati that are from Cincinnati, they'll say, "What high school did you go to?" And they, and you know, that's they, like saying, "What, what, you know, neighborhood are you from?" And to come in here as an outsider to become a member of a nice prestigious country club here in town to be an outsider to make it work you know that was my goal was to succeed here raise a family and you know have a you know make a nice living for myself i'd have to say i've exceeded probably my expectations when i look back over the 30 years
1: what was the low point on the journey for you
2: well Initially the first several years of um, starting this business, I was negative cash flowing and um, my negative cash flow was coming out of a retirement IRA accounts and that I accumulated. So that was a that was somewhat of a low point. How, but, how, many, uh, <laughs> how many
1: how many years were you losing money?
2: I would say it was about thirty months. Where I was losing money before, you know, we hit break even, and it took another at least you know twelve to eighteen months to recover what I had bled through. Right? It was a touch and go there for a little while. So
1: four, four, four plus years just to yep. get back to where you started.
2: Yeah. Right. And you know, when I left the insurance agency, I was back in those days, I was making over a hundred thousand dollars. You know, that was, that was a pretty successful lifestyle for a young, you know, 20 something to, to go, you know, negative for, for, you know, basically four years. So obviously uh, the trade-offs, you know, um, I, I have, I have a 31 year old son So, you know, basically when I started this business, we had our first, you know, born child and, and, um, well, we have a great relationship. I have two other, I have three children all together and we have great relationships. Just got back from a great snow skiing trip and with those guys. And, but, you know, there were times where I missed out on some important stuff and, uh, you know, working on this business and, and no doubt it, you know, created some stress on, on my marriage at that time. So, um, everything's, you know, I, I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm very blessed by how everything has all come together. I feel very fortunate that, um, you know, you know, the relationships that I have with uh, my family are, are strong. I got, you know, great, you know, relationships here in our community. Um, deeply involved with a number of different nonprofits and my family together and I have, we, we've built uh, the Chasnoff private foundation as well as um, have a, a nice donor advised fund that we've created. And we're really hoping to you know, make a difference in you know, a number of other lives of others going forward.
1: So what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you 20 or 30 years ago, getting going with the business?
2: When I first started the business I I talked to a con, you know, like back in the days Arthur Anderson and there was a great consultant here in in Cincinnati and I told him about my business plan about creating a fee only financial advisory firm and you know we weren't going to charge you know transaction fees we just charge for our advice and he told me Michael that it's the best plan I ever heard of but it won't work I guess I'm one of those, you know, entrepreneurs type people that if you say you can't do something, I'll, you know, double down and <laughs> tell you I it, I can do it or something. You know, i am got that little competitive spirit. I think that that's the thing that everyone needs to have when they, you know, go into any business is they've got to have that perseverance. They have to believe in their dream, you know, basically their vision. And then I, I really think that the fact that I did this not, not to make a ton of money, but I wanted to, I wanted to do something the way I wanted to do it, and I really feel like too many people today, these startups are all about building something, flipping out of it to to make money, and going to another deal and flipping out of that to make some more money, and I'm not, yeah, you know, I'm I'm not a big believer that 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 those are, you know, the really uh, The same kind of thing that, you know, that that I've been involved with today.
1: So what was the biggest positive turning point in the business?
2: Probably a big breaking point, you know, break point for me um, was two things. I guess one, you know, about two and a half years into the business, I was, I'll tell a lot of, you know, my young people working at the company, I said, hey, I'm working here on Saturday morning. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. I'm sure all my buddies were out playing golf. And I'm in the in the office preparing for a meeting on Monday when the phone rang and a very wealthy business owner called me and, and wanted me to come and, and, and meet with him. And if I had not answered that phone call, I know that this guy would not have left a voice message. <clears throat> the fact that I was working on a Saturday morning when that guy called and I was available to come out and, and get together with him was a big you know it was definitely a big break but maybe even a bigger break later was because i had built up a bit of reputation in the industry with napfa being quoted in the financial press uh, nationally worth magazine came along and back in 1994 and created their first you know top wealth advisor listing and i don't know i don't i have no idea how many people applied? But I applied to that. I thought I'm going to give this a shot. I was selected as one of the top sixty financial advisors in 1994, when Worth Magazine was truly a publication that people, yeah. you know, kind of listened to. And so, and then uh, not that far right after that, and still in 1994, beginning of '95. I was in Jane Bryant Quinn's uh, column and she wrote a piece about full disclosure. And we used our ADV back at those times essentially as a simply written communication piece that fully disclosed how we how we do business, how we charge, you know, what you know services we offered and our you know basically our experience you know, our educational experience, right? And she was so fascinated with the fact that we would be so upfront and and (laughs) open. She interviewed some people that were looking for advisors and no one would provide them with their ADV. And yet I was using ours as like our brochure, effectively. Her piece went national along with the fact that I'd just been named in Worth Magazine. And we had people waiting in our lobby to meet me <laughs> and the phone was ringing off the, of the uh you know off the hook at the time.
1: So what advice would you give younger newer advisors getting started today?
2: Well, I still believe in all the things, you know, the um values and and principles that, you know, you know being a good fiduciary, being there for your your client, generating a great client experience. I think Those are the most important things that we can do today as yesterday. And and the minute we get away from focusing on what's right and, you know, treating, uh, you know, everyone around you with great respect, because, you know, we are no better than anyone else in the office. And uh, we're not, you know, we might know or understand personal finance more so than our our client, but they are successful for other reasons. Our opportunity is to, um, you know, to to provide them great guidance and advice that is specific to their personal values. Now, I think if 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 um, new advisors today continue to do those things, uh, they will over time. If they're willing to put in the time and take a long view, they'll. I think they'll be rewarded you know, well, I just do see, you know, many times seemingly that, you know, the, everyone, you know, slams the, the millennials for having a, kind of a shorter mindset about how much time it takes to, to uh, achieve, you know, their goals. Uh, and I do think that it does require some, you know, some patience.
1: So what comes next for you?
2: Well, I mentioned I'm involved um, some charities, some you know nonprofit organizations, some private foundation work here. I personally want to have greater impact in helping directly helping individuals that need to get over the hump. So you know I've been able to transfer some appreciated securities into a private foundation, and it will allow me to direct money to, you know, to individuals. And I, I really want to make a difference and feel the difference of helping others. Now, the hard part is doing that in a way that doesn't undermine their motivations. I want to do that in a positive, empowering manner. And that's the hard part.
1: So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And and one of the things that always comes up is just the the word success means very different things to different people. And and so as someone who's built a what anyone call objectively call a very successful business of of many billion dollars under management, how do you define success for yourself at this point?
2: You know, I today I I mean I, I do recognize that I, you know, there were sacrifices, times where I wasn't always available, you know, to be at every, you know, be there to help out my wife with everything, you know, with these, you know, growing, you know, with these children. But I did find time to uh, coach them in baseball and basketball and soccer. (laughs) But the reality is, is that there has to be, you know, in my mind for success, there has to be some balance. You know, at TruePoint, we... We we offer a tremendous amount of flexibility and life balance opportunities, and I think that, and you know you know the way I define it for myself, I I I want to be able to continue to compete and work and 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 achieve, but also want to give back and see you know see and feel the value of what I can do for others as well, and that's. I think I'll be measuring my success, you know, seeing others succeed. Maybe also if I can get my uh, handicap down to uh, single digits one of these days too. It's
1: good good to have goals. It's good to have goals. Well, awesome. I, thank you so much, Michael, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast and, and sharing the journey.
2: Thank you, Michael. I really do appreciate the opportunity to uh, participate and be part of your uh, podcast program.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor?